I would love to if you come over and suck me off. But uh, Anastasia Palaszczuk would slap the dick out of your mouth. <laughs> Welcome to Bunta Vista. This is uh, episode six of the Theo Files, as far as I understand it. I think that's hmm. correct. I am Theo, uh, and I am here with my good friend Ben in the great salt plains of the accursed. Uh, that's right. Mm. Uh, we've both been um, given ironic curses due to our selfish and malevolent actions. I myself, uh, I'm six feet tall, and I, I, I certainly am now. Uh, I advertise myself as six feet tall on the village notice board um, and kind of uh, struck up the attention of one of the village elders' most sumptuous daughters um, upon finding out that I am only five foot Fucking, what is it, 10? Surely not. I'm 169 centimetres. What's that in... Uh, I couldn't tell you. In, okay. Five foot I think I'm, 10. I'm I think I'm like five foot... Uh, no, I'm, I'm like bang on six. As yeah, far as and I, I am now. Um, now that I've suffered yeah. the ironic curse. Unfortunately, um, that six foot is made up of... So I've got like feet at the bottom, got shins as normal and knees. <laughs> and then I've got six... Uh, repeated, like if you take the leg and then another knee yeah. and then the leg and then another knee and you do that six times all the way up to... So, uh, it's, sorry, it's, I hate to interrupt your flow hmm. there. Uh, is that six times including uh, the normal, including the normal knee, thigh normal knee, thigh sort of operation? Yeah. Oh, sorry, is it knee, thigh or knee, shin? So we're going knee, yeah, knee, shin. So let's start from the feet. Yeah, so we've got knee, you've got feet, your shins, oh, sorry, feet, shin. shins and, and calf, sorry. you got your yeah, knee. Lower leg. Yep. You've got knee. Yeah, you've got mm-hmm. your calf, um, yeah. thigh, etc. Another knee. Wait, hang on. I'm already confused. Calf, thigh, etc. Thigh. Sorry. You've got a composite for the middle one. Thigh. Okay. So let's go. Feet, lower leg, knee, upper, upper leg. leg. Perfect. Knee, upper leg, knee, upper knee. leg, knee, upper leg, etc. Till you reach a big old dump truck ass. Um, <laughs> my dick and balls are hanging out, and then I've just got like a head placed <laughs> on top of that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> The dick and balls hanging out seems optional. Like, you could still be wearing... Well, they wanted to to leave me with something. Oh, you see, I could be wearing... Well, they don't really make pants in my size. (laughs) (laughs) Because your your waist is is your shoulder width, essentially. (laughs) Like, I think if you put on the, like, largest or second to largest pair of ruggers you can get, and you just pulled that all the way up to the top mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, of your seven segments It'd be of doing legs. something, which is more than what I'm doing currently, which is sort of yeah, right now it seems like you're not putting any rolling effort in. around in the salt plains, sort of with all my with all my shit hanging out. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like a millipede. <laughs> it would take so okay. So do each of these knees articulate in the regular fashion of a knee? Oh yes, they've got you know. Right, so you were sort of having to make D-shaped legs to accommodate yeah. <laughs> the motion required. <laughs> <laughs> mm, that's quite heinous. Mm-hmm. Um, and speaking of heinous, I'm of course here with my good friend Ben, uh, who is slithering mm. on his stomach like the serpent of Genesis, um, for <laughs> for lying again to the village elder. Um, Saying that he has a, a lovely a lovely wife uh, to marry to his most eligible son. Of course, it takes the shape of a donkey now, but... It was a wife, potential wife, when I saw it Potential last. wife. And, um, and when married, you know, the, the curse would be lifted. 
Um, of course, when you when he married the donkey, the curse wasn't lifted. Uh, it was you, in turn, that was cursed. You tried to make your quick getaway, but you forgot you sold your donkey. <laughs> slight, slight kind of hole in the plan there. Yeah, well, I didn't anticipate a need for escape. Right. You know, uh, it's easy to cast my actions as if they were born of bad intentions. Oh, you're thinking uh, but the... But I truly yeah. believed that that was one of those classic... Uh, donkey will turn into beautiful woman with the holy power of wedlock type situations. So you're the true victim in this? I am the true victim in, it, it turns out, uh, anytime anyone has run afoul of anything in my life, I have been the victim hmm. when I look back over when it. When you look back, you can't assign any blame whatsoever to yourself, only Except to outwards. those. Outwards, yeah. You know how you're like, very good uh, at that. In the way that every every photon is moving away from the sun, all of the blame is moving away from my yes. body. <laughs> Uh, you're exo exo blamic yeah that's right Um, that's a that's a nerd bullshit word um, which is great because we're here to talk about the theophiles Uh, we've got one each here Um, I've got one so I'm going to kick us off here and this was one that I it wasn't like um, a funny thing that happened where thousands of people died like we usually talk about it's a classic classic um there's no explosions in this one. Um, nobody dies. Nobody ends up getting their honkers like attached um, to their buttocks with one knee <laughs> per cheek, etc. <laughs> this was just a bunch of stuff that I found interesting. Uh, if you if that sounds bad to you, then maybe skip to the thirty-five Don't, minute part. You can't. All right. You've got to come into it with more confidence than this. This isn't real Sun Tzu. You've got to win okay. the war before you start it. But I did find this, this stuff really interesting. So um, here it is uh, on to you. So I was recently watching a bunch of videos by a guy named um, Adam Neely. I don't know if you've seen Adam Neely on YouTube. Um, no. He is a jazz musician um, and educator, and he kind of goes into some incredibly like deep and entertaining videos about music um, in, on YouTube. Um, I would highly recommend all of his stuff. It's fascinating and it goes way further than you would expect it to. Um, but one of the topics he kind of goes into is the the limits of like our understanding of tempo. Um, and um, so there's two videos on on there that um, I would urge you to kind of check out yourselves if you if you want. Um, what is the fastest music uh, humanly possible, and what is the slowest music humanly possible? Mm. Two separate. But um, very much interlinked videos, I think you'll find. Um, but what I want to do is kind of like take this and see whether we can expand it a bit and try and like link a bunch of phenomena in as to how we as humans perceive time. Um, can I just, you know, like I don't want to disparage Lucy or Andrew, our other two cars. Hmm. This is maybe your first episode. Um, you know, I respect them. Sure. I, I think the world of them, I would say I've come to love them in time. Uh but I just, I, it's, I don't want to sound elitist, but you would never link phenomena with those guys. <laughs> no, they're, they're happy with phenomena completely unlinked. Yeah. They'd be like, oh, uh, some disparate phenomena? <laughs> okay. Mm, means nothing to me. I won't even attempt to link hey, it. Hey, I've uh, seen I'll, some dots. I'm going to go throw a perfect spiral yeah. instead. <laughs> not going to draw a line between Absolutely those bad boys. Not. Yeah. Who has the time? Yeah. I'm too busy having premarital sex and going to house parties. Mm-hmm. And being happy and stuff and sort of like enjoying yeah, Probably the, of the four like of taking us, a you know, we're going to draw or... a line. Uh, 
sort of uh, in the Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance style, if we were to take a, a razor to divide the podcast into sections, mm-hmm. you could have the depression section yeah. and the fart section. <laughs> but we may we may yet link those two sessions uh, in my topic Ooh. as we... Uh, if we, we just give us enough time to breathe. You've popped the cork mm. off this topic and now you've just got to leave it... Leave it a little while to waft. Letting the topic breathe. Mm. So important. So it's so important. So kind of like, so initially I wanted to do like a whole continuum and like start with the macro and talk about how we perceive times over, time over the years because I've been reading a book that my dad bought me called um, The Light Ages, which is about science in the early Middle Ages. Oh, uh, a steampunk novel by Ian McLeod? No, this is about uh, science in the early Middle Ages. Oh, that's interesting because I've read <laughs> a book called The Light Ages that is a steampunk well, novel by Ian McLeod. And we can just continue talking as if we've both read the same book and see how far it yeah. gets us. Well, um, I feel very foolish now. I got it for $5 from a dimmer. So I was like, wow, no one else has ever read that book. So it's sort of just like, um, so it goes into, you know, how we kind of like document um, time and like the passage of years and that sort of stuff. And... I've come to the conclusion that I just don't give a shit about astrology. Um, so it's like impressive, but like it's effectively just very like careful and exhausting bookkeeping of where like constellations rise and set and stuff like that. Uh, mm-hmm. And occasionally you can like freak out the local warlord by predicting a solar eclipse. Um, and you look like a god, like in those episodes of Stargate where the team goes to a primitive mm-hmm. planet, and the indigenous peoples have like rocks tied to sticks, etc. And then they're like, holy shit, is that a Fabrique National LP90? Like, um, yes. Uh, but you must help us repair your por- our portal. Is that a... <laughs> A, a, a bullpup profile <laughs> lights a machine. This is, this is like scratching in the dirt. Magazine goes behind the handle. <laughs> it's a very distinctive looking weapon, though, isn't it? I remember watching Stargate in bed, like, oh, it is a, a cool it is gun. A cool gun. It is a cool gun. Very simple, apparently, and it's just like it's got this like mystique because the molding is like cool. It's just like a cool like molded yeah. gun, and of course. The, the magazines at the back was kind of like all the way along the top and they got to like rotate a bullet down and stuff. Which, unlike the, uh, the Australian standard issue firearm, which is the... Steyr AUG. Is that, that also, is also a bullpup? Bullpup? But it looks like shit. It looks like absolute shit. It's a fucking Fisher-Price ass gun. <laughs> it looks like they forgot to attach a bunch of stuff to it when they were assembling yeah. it. To the skeleton of a skeleton gun. Skeleton of a gun. This is the prototype. Thing. We made it out of plastic. The real thing is coming soon. <laughs> we'll add the gun we'll, bits uh, we'll later. Make it look but like first, a gun. let's sell a million of them to Australia. <laughs> um. So yeah. So I don't, I don't know. I I don't find that stuff particularly. Um. Like it's it's early science, but it's it's sort of it, it's sort of I don't know. We kind of I think feel like we're at a point now where we don't really need to look at constellations coming up and down um and they they it is a good book though so it's, it's a super interesting book they kind of go into how i mean like our our sense of time is like a construct right as far as the hours go and that sort of thing um and um previous to mechanical clocks so if you look back to like a th- um the the first millennia ad and and like up to like a thousand and twelve hundred sort of thing um, they had this thing called uneven hours. So your the sun would would rise at six a.m. and it'd set at six p.m. and you'd have midday 
in between at 12, mm. regardless of the seasons. So the hours would just get longer and shorter because that's the thing that you have to keep time is the sun coming up and down, right? Um, which I, th- I thought was was interesting. But then as soon as they like come to mechanical clocks and, um, and the Chinese were doing a lot of stuff with like water clocks at that time, um, then even hours become easier to do and sort of we've kind of gone to that obviously but um i was actually uh, i was listening to a fascinating episode of i think maybe 99 percent invisible uh, that was talking about how the idea of standardized time between towns didn't become a thing in the uk until the advent of the railroad <laughs> and beforehand you'd have towns that were like a whole hour oh, off absolutely neighboring towns yeah. and it didn't really matter because what are you going to do you're it? late to your fucking frog peeling appointment <laughs> yeah you exactly. can peel those frogs anytime. <laughs> that frog will keep before you <laughs> peel right. it. As long as you keep it wet, it's good for for a few hours. <laughs> you actually only need to trim a little bit off the bottom of the frog. Keep that suspended in a, in a glass of water. You don't store it in the fridge because you will dry it out. <laughs> All right, but um, I want to, like so I want to zoom in further and kind of like concentrate more mm. on on um um the sort of moment-to-moment thing, right? So, um, as we go in a bit further, we get from our ability to discern the passage of time into the zone of what we might call the present, right? And so, in absolute terms, there might not be anything that we can assign to literal meaning of the present because we can't freeze a single moment in our senses and perceive it, right? So, we've got all kinds of delays built in from our ability to, like, receive information from our eyes and ears and nerves, like, all the way along our body, um, and then, um, so they all have delays to, to, you know, inputs and that sort of thing. And then we can either experience a reflex or process them and, um, get a, get a reaction. But it's our body or our brain, sorry, fabricating an idea of experiencing a present, which is not really. That's exactly right. Yeah, exactly. We're never experiencing all our senses simultaneously. That, There's always a little bit that's, of a, That's but right. But there, but yeah. it is useful for our body and ourselves to kind of consider a period that we might like that we might describe as the present, right? And so there is there is such a period from a sensory pers- perspective and it appears to be more than a few seconds but less than about 10 seconds, right? So in the mm-hmm. um so I, I saw one paper that that Adam nearly brings up um, between like 3 and 8 seconds. Um and so and during this this period this is when we feel like we're directly perceiving things, right? So if we consider something that happened longer than this amount of time, then we need to spin up the brains of parts of the brain responsible for like estimation and reconstruction. And we get into concepts like working memory instead of direct perception, right? But, but within that time, it's like, this is the now, right? This is a thing that's happening sort of thing. Um, and it's within this period that seems to be like the longest period of time that we can accurately subdivide time as well. So what do we mean by that? So if I was to make like a beat, right? So like a a bass drum beat or something like that, and then another in in about 10 seconds, and then another Mm -hmm. in 10 seconds and so on, it's very unlikely that your mind would be able to link them as a a beat or a groove. Um, In effect, you know, you would process these as separate events because it occurs outside of the present and not like some stream of music that's occurring right uh, so you've never listened to dope smoker that's uh-huh. interesting <laughs> <laughs> there and and there is in fact like a, a bunch of these um um like examples like you said of, of sort of 
um, drone metal and then taking it to the, you know, the, the extreme. And the extreme of this seems to be about 33 beats per minute. Um, mm-hmm. So it's about like every a note every two seconds or so. At that point, you can still establish a beat and a groove in your mind. You can still kind of count in between the beats quite accurately. But past that, you really like start to lose the the um, the ability oh, to yeah. as it kind of escapes the present and into something a a note that you remember happening previously. Yeah. So. It's not something you're experiencing. It's a historical event well, that's, that's repeating itself. But that's right. After you've after it's passed. exactly. So to quote um, Adam Neely um, in, from from his video, this is where you go from feeling the groove to remembering the groove, oh, right? That's beautiful. Um, and so this time within the periods of a lot of like the last few seconds that that occurs is what we kind of term as the perceptual present. Um, so I I'll kind of got some stuff written down here that I like want to editorialize a bit about that I reckon that time period that lives just beyond that is like also responsible for the doorway effect so is that that one you you cross you cross through a doorway and you completely you lose forgot. all of your yeah, yeah. Um, which I am doing my life kind of exists from one doorway effect to the next and occasionally <laughs> I manage to get some work done by not crossing a, like the threshold or whatever um, there was a, an episode of Oh Yeah Dude where they read out a paper about the doorway effect where, but the paper, the language they used uh, was that crossing the threshold of the door they referred to as the event horizon. <laughs> oh, I really enjoyed love it. Love that. Like badass. Mm. Um, so, like, at that point beyond that, that's when we stop relying on sensory memory and start w- relying on working memory. Um, so, like, our ability to kind of keep a few things like tasks in the head and that sort of stuff. And there's there has to be an information transfer in between these two periods um, to occur from it to kind of exit your senses and become a thing that you're thinking about and doing. Uh, and for me, mm-hmm. that's completely fucked. The pipe is too small. The pipe small. is way too small. I've got one of those uh, tiny little pipes that's just for farts. <laughs> it's a shame. No good for thoughts. So... If we kind of zoom in further, around the like 200 millisecond mark or so is our response time or reaction time. And that seems to be pretty consistent for most uh, for most people, right? So like pro athletes might be down to like 180 milliseconds if you measure, you know, sprinters on the block. And this seems again to be um, consistent across um, sexes, um, it's pretty. It's pretty like relatively similar for most um, for most people um, as far as like the distribution goes, and so like a common refrain is that as we get older, our reaction times get worse, and it does seem that the reaction time seems to slow by a few milliseconds per year, but this is apparently not due to our ability to process information, but actually to move afterwards. So mm. we still retain the ability to to turn around a thought um, in like 200 milliseconds, right? To, to, um, and also I, I saw that the decision time is about 500 milliseconds, right? So if you've got like two buttons and you've got to hit the right one, um, that's about 500 milliseconds to turn that around in your head. But whereas like if you've got to just, you know, launch off the sprinting block or whatever, that's about 200 milliseconds. And it gets worse because just because our bodies slow down, not because our brains slow down. So I'm actually like not, not terrible at Dark Souls because... Um, 
I'm old and my brain is decaying. I'm actually still a genius, and it's just that like my body is betraying me. I've got yeah. the soul and the Otherwise, heart of a gamer, but if your if your thumbs were quicker off the block, yeah, you no, know, you'd be rolling with the best. That's of them. exactly right. Um, and I wouldn't be fucking stuck in Sense Fortress for the last six hours of my life. God, I'm so bad at this. You do this on purpose. You're doing this. for I'm fun. doing this for fun. Yeah, and I do enjoy the. I, yeah. I enjoy it. I think. Yeah. When I'm in the the present. And when I think back on it, maybe. I, I don't know. I try not to think back on things too much. It leads to trouble. No, that's what mindfulness is mm. all about. But anyway, like this this doesn't really, like the actual processing doesn't slow down because as we'll kind of see shortly, there's lots of things relying on this, this like turnaround time here. And so they reckon like the lower limits on if you were just superhumanly good at reacting to things would be about 100 milliseconds or so. Um, and there's a very good reason for that because uh, beyond 100 milliseconds or shorter than 100 milliseconds is where things start to get weird. Um, so on one end of things, the 100 milliseconds seems to be the speed at which our sensory memory operates at. So as in we can hold a single sensory response for about 100 milliseconds. You know, I've touched something, I've tasted something without it, you know, and then the, the stimulus is removed um, that kind of memory of your sense seems to be about 100 milliseconds or so. Um, so longer than that, it moves to your perception of it, mm-hmm. um, respond, and then responding to it and so forth. Um, but then from 100 milliseconds to about 10 milliseconds or so is what I would refer to as the mush zone. Mm-hmm. Um, everything here is just completely fucked up, and your brain is just laying tracks down in front of itself, like Wallace and Gromit, uh, pretending everything is fine. Um And I don't believe it's coincidence that this time period is sort of overlapping with our sensory memory. So at about 100 milliseconds or 10 frames per second, the lower limit on um, the speed of movies or animation for us to discern that it's moving and not just a sequence of images. So Mm -hmm. animation on the twos or every second frame is 12 frames per second. Um, and then otherwise your movies are 24 frames per second um, or 48 if you're a complete freak. You saw Hobbit, The Hobbit at, at the cinema, right? In like 40 not F- at the cinema, FPS. No. no? no. Uh, it's weird. I did not because um, I, I already found the movie upsetting enough about the, <laughs> the frame rate thing. Uh, did you see that? Um, was it Ang Lee did that movie that was 120 FPS? That someone, someone's halftime walk? No, I haven't. It's too many frames, bro. That is way too many frames. You're wasting frames mm. on me. I'm just going to toss half of them out. I'm going to take yeah. the other half. I'm going to toss half of them out again. I could take a quarter of mm. those, and I would not notice that the other three quarters are missing. 100 Except for the vomiting I've been doing in the cinema, trying to figure out what the fuck mm-hmm. is happening. Yeah. It would be weird if you went into a cinema not expecting it. Yeah. Like something's, something's wrong. wrong. Is it wrong with tearing me? Tearing your face off Hellraiser yeah. style. And they're just like, oh, no, it's meant to be mm-hmm. like this. It's art. Oh, just put my face back on. So, like, okay, so so at 24 frames per second, that's about 42 milliseconds of frame, right? So at that speed, you can jam two frames into the, in the time span of sensory memory, and your brain's just like, oh, okay, that's a train coming for me. It's coming mm-hmm. right ah. at me. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> no time to grab the children. No. Get out of here. Um, but weirdly, this is also where the limits of how fast music 
can be played comes in as well. So, oh. like, putting aside the limits of physically playing it, right? So, we're talking about cranking up the BPM in Ableton, doing that sort of thing, or, you know, some ungodly jazz band or, or, or what have you, right? So, something, again, weird begins to happen to our sense of sound at this 100 milliseconds point. So, it's there's this real cutoff between individual events, like I said, with the individual frames of animation or individual sounds, and something else. So I've got a few examples here, which we will edit in in post. Um, uh, do you want to maybe just tell the listener uh, how you're generating these uh, sounds, just out of interest? As in physically? As in what you're playing them from. Okay, all right. So we here at Bunta Vista uh, lack the technology, except for Andrew, who has, uh, uh, I believe, a... A patent on it, perhaps, um, or at least... Oh, no, don't tell them about the uh, embarrassing headphones on the microphone thing. I meant the Python <laughs> script that you've written. So, in, again, in, in, um, in Adam's um, video, he, um, he uses Ableton with a particular, particular note um, and, or a drum beat um, to, to kind of show what I'm about to show. Um, and there's actually a separate Q&A that he does um, where um, somebody asks whether you can take uh, one note and speed it up enough to to get a different note. And I want to kind of reproduce this um, in line with the thesis here or the, the on, like the, the common theme here um, of this, this mush zone. So I have written some Python code. Um, it's mm-hmm. okay. I was going to be writing Python code anyway, whether it was for the podcast or not. Um, just to go through this, right? So the first sound is just a pure tone. Um, it's a, it's a sine wave, um, which is, um, so if you've got a sine wave that goes up and down 440 times a second, that is a pure A note. Um, so when we hear this, we, we hear that this is going up and down 440 times a second. Um, and we register that as the note a in our brain, right? So if we play that, so there is just a middle middle A. I'd know that note anywhere. Mm. So we we mm. but we recognise that as one sound. We don't hear the wiggles up and down. Um, but it doesn't have to be a sine wave, right? We hear or process stuff as it as it begins to happen more quickly than this hundred millisecond point. We begin to stop hearing um, individual sounds. And it gets mushed up again into a new sound or or or, um, or note, right? So I'll, I'll kind of demonstrate this. So if we play this A note at five times a second, right? We can hear this um, playing five times within a single second. If we do it ten times, we can hear it ten times playing within a se- single second, right? But it's still individual notes. But then this this weird thing starts to happen beyond that 10 times a second or 100 millisecond point, right? Where if we do this at 20 20 times a second, so 20 hertz, you start to hear this other tone occurring, right? So this was 10. This is 20. And you can kind of start to hear this other note starting to get introduced. If we do it at 50... You can't even really hear the A anymore. If you take this all the way up to 200 or 600. Right, so the 
individual note has completely gone and it's replaced with a new note that is just how many times we're playing that original note um, per second. And kind of going back to, to how we got here, again, like the, the, the contention is that you can't really play music faster than a particular rate because at, at one point individual notes start to blend in and create a new note. So I said you can't play music past a, or, or, or interpret as music past a particular like speed, right? There is actually a genre of music that kind of takes this effect and exploits it to make its own um, sort of music from it from the from the new notes um, called. Can I guess what it's called? Sure. Nerd music. Mm. Extra tonal music. <laughs> you're you're right. Um, I think from the Greek. Um, yeah, but there's. I mean. It does crop up from time to time in um, in mainstream music, right? So, um, if you listen to the track "Giorgio" by Marauder by um, Daft Punk, towards the end they do exactly this with a um, with a single note that you kind of hear speeding up and slowing down, and then they start to repeat it so quickly that it becomes a new note. Um, well, it's much like um, towards the end of. Uh, is it the Rockefeller, Rockefeller Skank, Skank by... by uh, I checked, because that was my first example, and that's not actually it. Oh. <laughs> that's a different thing. What? It's the other one? No, no, Wait, it, is, that's that's not song. The same it is the song, but it's not the same thing. Oh, God they damn it, I thought of... I was fucking... It's Sorry, similar, because that was the first example I was going to as well, but it didn't turn out to be... I see you're saying it's kind of pedestrian. It's the first one everyone thinks of. Mm. Um, but you don't have to do it with like a single note, right? So you can do it with a, with a bass drum... Um, I think I can try and put this in terms that our listeners might ex- might understand. So, mm-hmm. allow me to play uh, now a sound. This is just a single sound. Um, and then that sound again at um, five hertz. <laughs> Sorry, I might have missed that. Just so people catch that again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but... If we were to play this this delicious sound at 440 hertz, which again is an A note, you can generate a note um, from a fart. It's the classic uh, middle fart A. Middle fart A. Right. And so this changeover where it goes from being its own thing to uh, individual things to a new like note, again, happens around like the 50 to 100 millisecond mark, right? which mm-hmm. I think is completely uncoincidentally the limits of our hearing. So as humans, we can hear from 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz or so until we kind of you know, gradually damage our hearing. Um, and so, yeah, the, this overlap between sensory-wise where we stop you know, perceiving things as individual events and, and start, to, start to mash them all together also like completely maybe uncoincidentally overlaps with where we start hearing things um, both as, you know, a, a new note, but also just in general, like 20 hertz is the lowest that we can hear and it's, the, and it's when this effect kicks in, which I think is, is kind of cool, right? Yeah, that's I, I honestly never really thought of in terms of, like I know hertz is a measurement of periods of, you mm-hmm. know, uh, Repeating cycles, whatever you want yep. to call it. Uh, but, like, I, I never really connected when you talk about frequency bands as in literally it is that, that wave happening, Yeah, happening at however many times per second. So you can 
and and that's that's all like all it is that we hear. So when we um, so like computers, for example, when they when they output sound, they actually use they do it much the same way. They've got a, um, like a ones and zeros that go up and down very very quickly at a at a rate we can't hear. But then they turn that on and off um, at a rate we can hear. So it, so it's going to turn these squiggly up ones and zeros one on and off at four hundred forty times a second to to produce the sound that we that we hear. So even like um, that's called um, PCM or pulse pulse code modulation, I think. Um, so even like computers will, will use this effect of tricking you from being un- unable to tell the difference to produce sound. And we just don't know the difference because we're, you know, stupid. And Which is, that's how wave files are encoded, right? They're PCM. That's right. Yeah. Um, so, and then, but it, like the shape of what it what it is, what, what you use, so whether it's a sine wave or a fart or a square wave or a, or a triangle wave will give it the individual like timbre or the quality of what you what you hear right so like um back in like the nes days you'd use a square wave and then you would repeat that however many times and it'd make you know very kind of um the the eight bit noises that we're that we're used to whereas triangle waves sound like really cool as synthesizers and the sine wave the rounded wave is a very pure kind of tone um so anyway that's really not that's this part's not really Related to the perception of time, I just like, I just you like, like waves. I just like waves. Mister Oscilloscope himself. They're cool. I've, yeah, look, it's I've got it for cheap, right? Um, but there's one more thing. There's one more weird thing the brain does associating sounds to events, right? It's called the Huss effect or the precedence effect. So, say we hear a sound in the left ear, and then we hear it in the right ear about forty milliseconds later our brain will basically ignore the fact that we heard it in our right ear and say, no, I pretend I did not hear it, right? Because 40 milliseconds around the time that that might take for the sound to echo off things in the environment. Oh, sure. So there are all these echo effects, but your brain's like, no, don't, don't even worry about that. That'd be too confusing. Don't even think about it. Like it definitely came from your left. But if you crank the delay down to about five milliseconds, this will make your brain think the sound is absolutely 100% coming from the left, right? Which enhances your stereo localization um, effect. Because in stereo, our brain relies on a number of phenomena, um, including primarily intraoral delay, um, which is the time difference it takes from sound basically crossing the structure of your head. Right, so if you hear something mm-hmm. completely to your left, you hear it in your left ear, and then it will take you know five milliseconds or so for it to cross your head and you to hear it in the right ear, and that tells your brain that it came from that direction. Right, so it's a big, big part of how we can accurately pinpoint the source of sound. So if we don't have this, we're really bad at finding where sounds actually came from. Um, so in video games, you might see the term head-related transfer function, um, all this sort of stuff. It's basically modeling the skull to um, to improve the impression of a like, 3D soundscape by like faking the amount of time it takes for, for sound to cross our skull. Sort of so thing. when I see people on like, Twitter talking about how they've started HRT, this is what they're talking that's about? Exactly, that's exactly right. They're going huh. to get really good at echolocation. I can understand why they're excited. Absolutely. 
Um, but again, like at this point, we can't do anything useful else with the with this information, right? So like the when you get down to changing the times that events occur at this at this point, our brain basically just says these are the same thing to me, like the office meme or whatever. I think it's yeah, I think it's that guy from no, it's the it's the woman, the woman, Pam, Pam, yeah, yeah, says these are the same because. Our brain doesn't really know whether it's like a new thing or an old thing or echoes. So we can't really like perceive things down past um, or, or like different events um, under a certain interval. So within like 40 milliseconds or so, it just becomes this big mush of input and we're just doing our best with what mm-hmm. it is. And beyond that... We literally can't do anything else at all, right? So our neurons can only turn off and on about um, one millisecond each time or like a constant rate of about 100 times a second. So there's also like limits to how quickly sensation could be transported from one end of your body to the other, so your toes to your brain. There's a, a measurable delay time, right, for it to go all the way through the nerves, all through your junctions and that sort of thing to reach your brain. But our our brain has to kind of make a consistent kind of sensory present of that. So it's going to delay um, responding to that or, or saying that I'm aware of that until it can link all of the events together. So it might have, you know, information from uh, the top of your body or from different sensors, but it has to wait for the last stuff to really happen. So, so, so let's say um, you've got someone and they've sort of, they've pinched a nipple and they're sucking one of your toes at the same mm-hmm. time. Yeah. And it's and the, really important for the brain that you feel these at the same time. Yeah, and it's important for me as well. Mm-hmm. So I'm imagining that a man, the little man in my body, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> who delivers the messages uh, from my nerves to my yep. brain, he's run from my right nipple yep. up to my brain. He's hammering on the door and he's saying, I have got some sensory input for you. Yeah, you're not going to believe this. And my brain is going, hold up one hot second. And then you can hear running up the, the staircase that runs all the way up my body mm-hmm. uh, is from the toe that's being sucked on. There's a little guy there who's going, I also have some sensory input. And then the moment <laughs> sure he gets to the door, the brain is like, all right, let's party. Tell mm-hmm. me what's going on. That's exactly it, Ben. I couldn't have, couldn't have stated it better. You could have used any other example than the one I did. Might have been better, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> no, I think that's fine. <laughs> well, but that's about it, really. I think that's that's the entire, that's all of the stuff that I know about how we perceive time are you tired of paying nothing for the same old superior quality free episodes of the bunta vista podcast do you want less politics and more content about diarrhea or animals gone wild are you tired of skipping through those hours upon hours of paid product placement for mark Wahlberg film shooter well boy do i have the offer of a lifetime for you that's right, for just five US dollars a month, you too can be a premium VIP member of the Bunta Vista Patreon. That's right, just five US dollars for all of our bonus episodes. That's over 300 hours of content from the hosts you know and definitely tolerate. I'll even throw in access to our glamorous and exclusive Discord server, where bizarre arguments only happen once or twice a week at most. Head to patreon.com slash Vista. Sign up in the next five minutes and I won't know because that's not my job, but you'll be enjoying the sweet satisfaction of supporting us and we will love you romantically for it. That's my promise to you. That was absolutely fascinating. I think this might be one of the few episodes where you come out uh, just smarter and not horrified so Mm. far. 
Uh, so I am very sorry about that. But I think you've got something that will kind of improve it's, the situation. It's not... You know what? This is also not... There's nothing horrendous about this one. I think it's just quite fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, let me... Thank you so much first, before I get into this. I always love uh, learning about what fascinates you and then being fascinated by it myself. Mm. So it's a great joy. Um, to prime you for this one, to get you good and ready. Now, my pump is out. Yeah, and I have got one hand on the pump. Mm-hmm. And we're uh, we're ready to prime that bad boy. Yep, yeah, one hand is steadying you because I'm about to prime it very hard. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> prime it right off my body. <laughs> The dream. Uh, I'm going to give you a timeline of some events. Here we go. 1982. Kitchen entrees, a new line of frozen meals from a massive household name brand, spectacularly fails in North America because it turns out people are confused and alienated when their food has a giant Colgate logo on it. Oh, I thought we were going to be talking about confused and alienated when uh, they find out it's a full meal and not an actual entree. <laughs> no, but uh, you can see how that might happen. You dumb bitch. But from, from Colgate. Yeah, so Colgate decided to crack into the frozen foods market, which in the 80s was massive, and everyone was just like, oh, so it's like... Just choose teeth? a different name. Yeah, call yourself anything else. Anything else. Uh, just the photos of it is so good because the moment you see that Colgate logo, you're just like, no, <laughs> that's not for dinner. It's not for dinner at all. <laughs> Colgate, it's not what's for dinner. Colgate, not for dinner. <laughs> uh, 1988, uh, the RJ Reynolds Tobacco Company launches the premier smokeless cigarette. Uh, it's packaged much like a regular cigarette. But it is a hard tube containing a small amount of tobacco, some flavor beads, uh, all of which is heated by a carbon tip at the end of the pseudo-cigarette. They launched it. Market research found that less than 5% of respondents in the US enjoyed the taste of the products. Uh, And a reaction caused between sulfur matches and the carbon tip created an odor that, described by the then-CEO of the R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company, F. Ross Johnson... Smelled like a fart. <laughs> After spending somewhere between 300 and $325 million well, to on. get the product to market, <laughs> it was on. removed after a few months from shelves. <laughs> uh, 1990, the Pepsi Cola Company gives up entirely on Pepsi AM, the morning Pepsi beverage <laughs> with 25% more caffeine in it that they intended to use to lure people away from coffee. Oh, man. You know how... It's not a terrible idea, though. What? A Pepsi, but it's slightly stronger, and that's the first drink you have of the day? Yeah. Why not? You are... All right. This is interesting. I want you to keep that in mind that you've said that to me. Uh, 1998. Frito-Lay introduces the WOW line of chips using Olestra, a substance described Mm -hmm. by Wikipedia as a, quote, fat substitute that adds no calories to products. Uh, wow chips were marketed as a healthy alternative to regular chips. I can see that. Uh, the product is a massive success in its first year, making the most sales of any new product in North America in 1998. Oh, that sounds good. Sadly, those numbers are not sustained uh, because as the chips were marketed as a healthier product, consumers tended to eat way more of them than they would regular chips. Okay. And unfortunately... Uh, a side effect of eating too much Olestra, which is the same side effect as eating too much of any fat, mm-hmm. uh, is severe abdominal cramping and loose stools. 
uh, this prompted the FDA to put a warning on the chips saying that uh, consuming too much cholesterol will do this to you, uh, although they eventually uh, removed that from packaging and uh, light Smith chips had cholesterol in it up until 2006. Hmm. Uh, 2002, Nokia releases the Nokia Engage. Oh, buddy, now we're talking. Uh, which now sells... we're taco talking. <laughs> it did look like a taco, didn't it? Uh, the Engage sells 400,000 units in North America in just the first two weeks, according to Nokia. Uh, independent research reveals that 400,000 is actually the number of units that were sent to retailers. Sure. The actual number of Nokia Engages sold in the first two weeks is 5,000. Oh, my God. Mm. They could have put the microphone anywhere, I feel like. Very silly device that they kept doing re-releases of for a number of years afterwards. Well, they fixed the taco talking problem, and they very thought that was did. it. A very silly product. Uh, and finally from this list, uh, 2006, HD DVD is launched. I've got that on my on my calendar, actually. I know that by heart. You remember that date. <laughs> now, these are some examples of great historical uh, product launch flops. And, you know, this is a massive embarrassment for some companies. They will... hard for them to live them down. The, uh, in the, like, the follow-on from the Zune, Microsoft mm-hmm. saw something like a 40% reduction in game sales, which is completely unrelated to the Zune, but the name was tarnished so badly <laughs> by the Zune uh, that it harmed them overall. So what, what would be invaluable to you as a business would be if there was some way to know in advance... If your product was going to be unpopular with people, I mean, that'd be crack the code. That'd be the dream, right? Theo, allow me to read to you an excerpt from the paper Harbingers of Failure, mm-hmm. published in the Journal of Marketing Research. Decades of research have emphasized that customer feedback is a critical input throughout the new product development process. The central premise of this customer focused process is that positive feedback is good news. The more excited that customers are about a prototype, the more likely it is that a firm will continue to invest in it. When firms move to the final stages of testing and launching a new product, metrics of success shift from likes and dislikes to actual product sales. Again, conventional wisdom is that more product sales indicate a greater likelihood of long-term success. Sure. This assumption is fundamental to nearly every new product forecasting model. In this article, we challenge this commonly held assumption. We show that not all positive feedback should be viewed as a signal of future success. In particular, using detailed transaction data from a chain of convenience stores, we demonstrate that increased sales of a new product by some customers can actually be a strong signal of future failure. (laughs) Now, I know what you're thinking. Uh, uh This potentially could get quite dark from here. That we've we've managed to uh, kind of create a forecasting model around um, the dipshit effect, the the well, shithead signal. I was going to say that this could be about singling out specific demographics of people, you know, maybe by race or creed or something. Mm. But you're absolutely right. This yes. is about finding uh, the dipshit effect. Oh, my goodness, yes. Uh, the paper continues. We label them harbingers of failure. Harbingers are more likely to purchase products that other customers do not buy, and so a purchase by these customers may indicate that the product appeals to a narrow slice of the marketplace. This yields a signal that the product is more likely to fail. 
We identify these customers in two ways. Our primary focus is on customers who have previously purchased new products that have failed. We show that <laughs> oh we God. show that the tendency to buy hits or flops is systematic. Oh, have they if been cust- talking to my dad? Fuck! I I wrote I I bought an iRiver MP3 player back in the day because I was so like I was so convinced that I mm. didn't want to be part of the mainstream buying like a uh, like a a iPod with its big storage space and you know well supported and so you. Uh, so far, what we've got for you is you like the iRiver iPod, uh-huh. sorry, MP3 player. Yes. And Pepsi AM. It's interesting. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, if customers tend to buy failures, the next new product that they purchase is more likely to be a failure. For example, customers who purchase Diet Crystal Pepsi are more likely to have purchased Frito-Lay Lemonade, both of which failed. In contrast, customers who tend to purchase a successful product, such as a Swiffer mop, are more likely to buy other ultimately successful products, such as Arizona iced tea. How can this be true? Uh, So what's worse about the dipshit effect is it's not just that they choose dud products, it's that they like dud products. (laughs) Uh, Continuing from the paper here, it is not only that the initial purchase of new products by Harbingers that is informative, but also the decision to purchase again. A one-time purchase of Diet Crystal Pepsi is partially informative about a customer's preferences. However, a consumer who repeatedly purchases Diet Crystal Pepsi is even more likely to have unusual preferences and is more likely than other customers to choose other new products that will fail in the future. Now, they got this data from monitoring just uh, a whole shitload of purchases from uh, an unnamed but very large national retail chain. Sure. And Could sort be of anybody. looking at yeah. yeah, individual purchases that people made and sort of tracking those. Uh, from the data set that they have, which is huge, uh, Harbingers were more or less like other people. They had a few uh, qualities that made them distinct from everyone else. Uh, on average, they tended to try new products a week or so earlier than other consumers. But this is like, generally, it takes people 29.7 weeks to try a new product. Uh, Harbingers would try like 28. So, not a massive difference. Yep, yep. Uh, they tend to purchase more items, uh, but visit stores more infrequently. So, I don't really know what that means. Uh, they're more likely to choose cheaper items from the options available, and they are more likely to buy things on sale. So, they're mm-hmm. thrifty consumers. Yes. Oh, uh, I can see where this starts to kick in, yeah. And interestingly, they purchase a higher proportion of beauty items, but a lower proportion of healthcare items. Uh-huh. Yeah, so I don't... Hmm. Uh, they are also much more likely to purchase niche items, i.e. items that regular consumers just don't tend to buy. They are just straight-up weirdos. Or, mm-hmm. as the paper puts it, uh, this result is consistent with an explanation that Harbingers have preferences that are systematically different from other consumers. If Harbingers adopt a new product, it may signal that other customers will not be attracted to the product. <laughs> Imagine being that guy, right? And and they find you. And they're like, hey... <laughs> Yeah, look, buddy, we we really want we really just want to know what you think of uh, our new product, and they're just like following you around the store, seeing taking notes. He looks very interested in this. He picked up, looked at for a long time, like kind of reaches towards your product. (gasps) (laughs) (laughs) Oh god, damn it! (laughs) Just reaches down slightly for the tin of crab juice. (laughs) 
I just gotta have my crab juice. <laughs> now, you know what? Uh, I'm gonna tell you right now. It's not actually hard uh, to find these people because it turns out they all tend to live together. <laughs> now, this is from another paper building on the research of the previous one. Uh, and I quote, purchase of new products by households in these zip codes is a signal that the new product will fail. That's right. There are specific zip codes in which these people live. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> most precisely, holding the number of purchases by non-Harbingers fixed, the number of purchases by Harbinger zip codes is higher on products that fail than on products that succeed. So they can identify like entire swathes of cities... Swaths. Swathes. Mm. Swaths. Swathes. Where, in a distinct fashion from the other zip codes around them, Mm -hmm. these people buy wrong. Yeah, they make terrible choices. So, basically, you have, like, normal suburb, normal suburb, normal suburb, and then you drive, you take, like, a wrong turn, and everyone's drinking Crystal Pepsi. Yeah. What the fuck is going on in here? So, much like... In the previous study, uh, their primary data set when they began was uh, from like bulk purchases made in a large retail store. But it turns out that is not the only manner in which people in Harbinger postcodes pick duds. Continuing from the paper here, the same pattern extends to purchasing decisions at another retailer selling private label apparel. Zip codes identified as Harbingers at the mass merchandise store are also Harbinger zip codes at the apparel retailer. So they're not just buying food that no one else likes. They're also buying clothes that no one likes. (laughs) So they're drinking horrible novelty beverages and they're dressing like shit. God. And you know what? Oh, no. It goes even further. Hang on. I'm just... (laughs) This is really just starting to catch up with me. I used to like... When I was in, oh no! <laughs> when I was in uni, I would drink. Um, what's that cola that sucked? RC cola. RC cola. Yep. But I really <laughs> it like the worst of the colas. I isn't really it? like vanilla Coke, so I would buy <laughs> vanilla essence mm, and RC, RC cola, cola, which is like thirty cents a can. <laughs> you know what? This is. We'll discuss this at the end, but um. But my dress sense is fine. Yeah, you, you dress very well. You dress very sharply. Thank you. Beautiful dress, man. Whenever we'd have drinks after you'd just finished work, I'd be like, God damn, I dress like shit. Look at Thea. But my wife man. dresses me, so... Well, uh, that might be why that's an outlier then. Uh, so, other than picking ugly clothes, what do they do? <laughs> uh, this is more from the paper. We then ask whether our results extend beyond the retail domain, starting with a comparison of contributions to congressional election campaigns. <laughs> We identify the top two candidates and compare donations in each five-digit zip code with donations in neighbouring zip codes. Zip codes identified as Harbingers at the mass merchandise store are systematically less likely to donate to the most popular candidates. They are also more likely to donate to candidates who lose their elections. Oh my god. (laughs) Eat shit food. Wear shit clothes. Always back the wrong horse in political races. I'm a big Bernie fan. Mm, I mean, uh, yeah, when was the last time a local candidate that you liked won? Yeah, that's a fun thought, isn't it? Mm. All right, so we've got all those, but surely there can't be more. That can be. There's, that must be it. 
There, well, they're, they're 59 they're... minutes now on the recording. Yeah, so we should probably stop before I get to this last fact. Just kidding. Uh, we also <laughs> compare changes in house prices between 2002 and 2015. Zip codes identified as harbingers at the mass merchandise store had systematically smaller increases in their house prices during periods that prices were increasing or na- for neighbouring zip codes. How can this be? So, <laughs> they eat what no one wants to eat. They dress in a way no one wants to dress. Uh-huh. They back the politicians no one wants to be governed by. And they live in places no one wants to live. But, but like, weirdly, like, this is not necessarily, like, a class thing or something. This is something no, that sits outside of this. 100%. Where they just literally have bad taste across the board. Yep. Now, yeah, there, there's some... De- like, the, the, neither of these papers uh, attempt to draw conclusions as to what the underlying factor is. But, yeah, largely class is uh, not a factor in these things. Neither no, you, is can race. Be, you can be, like, middle middle class and have... Terrible taste and be like an awful spendthrift. Yeah. Um, dick doesn't work so good. <laughs> it could happen to anyone. anyone uh, well, all. But they do offer a variety of explanations on things like, uh, sort of you were alluding to this earlier, but that the idea that you just like, you don't want to be a part of the pack. Yeah, absolutely. You want to be a little bit different. So you go, oh, no, I'm going for this one. So it's something with a sort of oppositional sort of bent to it. Although mm-hmm. how that oppositional bent would make you be like, I want to live somewhere that sucks is quite funny. <laughs> uh, so, you know, obviously you could maybe attribute this to um, these suburbs sort of forming micro trends, right? That there's already a bunch of people there that already reject. Oh. And, and you know, you'd be like, yeah, you, you move see there a- and you go, oh, everyone yeah. here everyone wears here- these... Owns the Pontiac Aztec. <laughs> Everyone here is wearing gotta... flares, so I guess... <laughs> flares are in. It's time for me to wear flares. Uh, turns out that's not the case. Uh, data from the apparel retailer also allow us to observe households moving between zip codes. We use these events to ask whether the Harbinger zip code effect results from households with Harbinger tendencies clustering together or whether households learn these tendencies by observing their neighbours. We first ask whether households that move from Harbinger zip codes tend to move to other Harbinger zip codes. The evidence strongly supports this pattern. (laughs) Households that leave the Harbinger zip codes tend to go to other Harbinger zip codes. The reverse is true for households that start in non-Harbinger zip codes. They tend to move to other non-Harbinger zip codes. We ask whether households' tendencies change when they move, which might suggest that households' tendencies are in part learned from their new neighbours. We find no support for this. There is little evidence that Harbinger households' tendencies become more like their neighbours after they move. We conclude that Harbinger tendencies are a sticky trait, and the clustering of Harbingers within Harbinger zip codes appears to be caused more by the tendencies households bring than the tendencies that they learn. Straight on got that uh, bad taste gene. Yeah. Uh, That's Harbinger zip codes. Oh, my Uh, God. I am... Just the the idea that there's like a shadow realm out there... (laughs) Of people <laughs> just in, like, the whack suburbs. Uh-huh. And it's not that they're, like, uh, you know, sort of poor or neglected suburbs. They're parallel suburbs, but everyone there has whack taste. But everything there sucks. Like that episode of, of The Simpsons where at the end they, like, all see their, um, their like, doppelganger from the... Oh, fuck. Mm. Uh, it's the itchy and scratchy... One and they quit. Bart and Lisa quit the itchy and scratchy thing that they were part of, and then they present a thing to 
bizarro Barton Lisa. Barton Lisa. Yeah. And then there's an extremely ugly baby there as well. Yeah, with the the baby with the monobrow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's exactly like, like that. that. Yeah. I do like okay, so like let's think about um I mean we could probably I wonder where we'd get a map of where house prices are increasing in Brisbane and where they're not. Mm. And then work backwards from there. And find wanna... where these whack suburbs are. Yeah. And just find people wearing like the shirts that JJ's has to discontinue because no one wants to buy them. <laughs> and they're getting like the novelty chips that are a flavor no one wants. They're the yep. ones that are buying the like the Lamington flavored Smith's mm-hmm. crinkle cut chips. So yep. if we find someone buying one of those and we follow them home, driving their <laughs> Nissan Cube. <laughs> <laughs> you know to live nowhere near them. Yeah, don't live there. Because for one, uh, that house that you definitely own, because so many of the people who listen to this podcast are homeowners, uh, it will not increase in price. So don't do that. Fucking wild. I just mm. want to go to one of these parallel dimensions so bad. Because to me, I would say that all of the Sunshine Coast is that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the it's the um it's the socks and sandals of the Brisbane think, Greater Metropolitan. I think socks and sandals are actually cool now. Uh, lots of young people wearing those. Oh, uh, so no. I, I don't know. It's hard to make sense of these things. I'm not the one to I'm make fucked. a call on on what fashion is whack or not. Mm-hmm. I went around to your house the other day. You were wearing socks and sandals. Look, we don't have to. I mean, you were. You're wearing gold I put Birkenstocks. On, okay, those are Caitlin's. I put them on because you came around. Otherwise, I would just wear socks in the yard. Yeah, that would have been fucking disgusting. And stare, would just stand out there like a like a freak in the middle can't of do that. in the middle of my yard. Some very clear sight lines from other places. I uh, mean, you've got a very nice lawn, so I guess you can maybe get away with it. But to that, that idea nice is repulsive like that. to me. But <laughs> I mean, it's better than what I had. But it was largely a dog had. Turned it into the surface of the moon. Mm-hmm. Into shitsville. Yeah, more more dirt and shit than grass. Yeah, mm. landlord didn't like that for some reason. <laughs> Onwards and upwards. Yeah, this has been the Theophiles. Oh, what a joy! Uh, I I was completely. I felt like the the well was a bit dry there for a bit, and then I was putting together this one, and I realised I'd completely forgotten about another topic that I'd wanted to do a Theophiles on. So. Oh, and to spend it with you, Ben, what could That's be better? That is an absolute dream. And hey, uh, we're technically getting paid for this as well. Could uh-huh. you believe it? I, I mean, I am. Hey, and these again. This is what happens to us every yep. time. Um, And then that's the... God, Andrew's so good at this. He is. For as it's much shit that we give him, so it's just like... So many other well, things. Do they know <laughs> about the booking issues? Where Andrew will just like book someone in completely the wrong time zone. He'll no, like think it's like ten hours ahead, and then but it's actually ten hours behind. It's and he's so many times, and so he's got like a times. spreadsheet for it and everything. Uh-huh. That's fine. I can do a uh, an Andrew ending if you like. Sure, let's okay. hear it. Ah, <sighs> <sighs> <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> well, that's it. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.